0: I'd like for you to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, and I want to read verses 14 through 21. Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. This is the end of the sermon of last Sunday on um, what we see from a mountaintop. I'm going to finish it today under the title of How to Lose Your Power or The Secret of Power. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. It's uh, interesting that Jesus had to rebuke the disciples before he rebuked the demon. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, You shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, And it shall move, and nothing, And nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The essence of the spirit life can be explained in one word, and that is power. When Jesus called His disciples, He gave them power. And the scripture said that Jesus said, I give you power over the evil spirit to cast them out. And this power was extended to the wider circle of the seventy. When he sent them out, he empowered them. And they came back exulting in the power that they possessed. And they said, Lord, even demons are subject to our power in your name. And Jesus said, I have given you power over all the power of the enemy. Well, what has happened here? What has happened to the supernatural might of these disciples? Have they... Assurances of Jesus just been illusions? Or has He given something that He has taken back? No. And yet these disciples are ignominiously beaten. And one little boy's trouble brings all their resources to nothing. He stands before them writhing in the grip of His tormentor and the disciples are helpless to do anything about it. And the Father's prayers are in vain. And you can just see on, his, on the face of this father, this once glowing expectancy and hope just fade away. And he just kind of slumps like one who is crushed. And he says in absolute dejection, they couldn't cure him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are there and they are sneering at the failure of the, man, of the men of God. That's always the case when a man of God fails And in their sneers they say, we knew there wasn't anything to this, just a scam, just a farce. And the crowd is buzzing and these disciples are standing there in absolute disappointment, impotent and powerless. And so no wonder, in a moment of privacy, they call Jesus aside and they say to Him, Lord, why is it that we have no power? And Jesus gives them an answer that they least expected for the last place that a person wants to look for an explanation to his failure is within. And so Jesus implies that their spiritual impotence is wholly within them. I tell you, there's something relevant about this text. Huh? I think it scratches us where we itch. For I think that if there ever was a time when the... When the church stands powerless against the world it's our time and the question is what has happened to our power and there are some principles that flow from this text to give some answers to that and the first principle is this that that the believer possesses in unvarying form supernatural power the thing that haunted these disciples is the thing that haunts the church in any age, that haunts Christians in any age, and that is, why are we so powerless? Why? Well, there are several possible explanations. Someone would suggest that the Holy Spirit was given in special fullness for certain times, but that was never meant to be permanent or perpetual. Some have suggested that man has outgrown The gospel. He has come of age and he's much too sophisticated for the message of the gospel or the message that the church uh, has. That the church and what it says is as out of date as the village blacksmith. And there are some suggest that, that what was given to that early church was for that day and not ours. That these signs and wonders that the church Manifested in that time was to validate and to authenticate the gospel, and now we have the gospel so that those signs and wonders are no longer necessary. Listen to me the same mission that was given those early disciples is our mission to fulfill, and the same thing that that group of disciples had to witness to the, to, to, to the loss, to witness of Jesus we still possess. As a matter of fact, the church has been given the power to conquer the world, and that gift is in unvarying, undiminishing form. What was theirs is ours. And the same message is the message that is needed by man. For what happened, what what did that message accomplish because of man's sin? It reestablished trust at the primal level. For what was man's basic need or is man's basic need as the result of the fall of sin? His need is the reestablishment of trust in the deepest level of his being. I heard the story one time of, a, of a, a two boys who were twins and they looked alike and they dressed alike and they talked alike and they acted alike. They, they thought alike. They were just like one and they went away to college and came back to the little town in the Midwest, and they went into business. And, 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 and everything they did, they did together. They were identical twins in every way. And one day, it was time during the time of the Depression, uh, a man came in and transacted some business, and one of the brothers took his money and just kind of laid it on the cash register and walked this customer to the door, visiting with him. He would known him all his life, and they stood at the front of the, of the, of the business and visited a while. When he went back down, back to the cash register, he, he found that the money was gone. While he was up at the front of the, of the store, a guy came drifting down through the alley, and he came in the back of the store. He saw the cash register unattended, saw the money there, so he took it. This guy couldn't find his money. He looked for his brother, who was in another part of the store. And he said, did you see that money I laid on the cash register there? His brother said, no, I didn't see any money laid there. He couldn't get that out of his mind. All day long, he was thinking to himself, what happened to that money? I distinctly remember placing it on the cash register. And so he asked his brother again, did you see, you sure you didn't see that money that I put on the cash register? And his brother sensed that suspicion that was there for the first time, that mistrust. And he lashed back at him in defensive anger and a rift developed between the two. And it grew and so one day they just built a petition right down the center of the store, you know, a big wall from the, from the floor to the top of the store, divided the store in half, and one operated on one half of the store and the other on the other, and for 20 years they never spoke. For 20 years they lived in this suspicion and mistrust and isolation. And one day a car pulled up out in front of the store, had a license plate from another state, and this guy got out and came in and he said, he talked talk to one of the brothers, he said, Uh, how long have you been in this store, been in business? He said, oh, for years. He said, let me, I've got a confession. He said, 20 years ago, I came down the alley. He said, I was raised in a Christian home, taught never to steal. But he said, I was out of work and I was hungry. And he said, I came in, I saw that money lying there. He said, I took it. And I came back to pay it back and to to compensate for all these years that I've been tormented by this guilt. And the man broke down and wept. He said, would you go around here into this other part of this store and tell this same story to the man that's over there? He said, sure I will. And they went on the other side, saw the identical twin, and the man told him the story, and he broke down and wept. And for 20 years they lived in this separation because there was this mistrust at the deepest level of their being. Something happened in the garden that caused an insurrection and a mistrust between the creature and his creator. And all of a sudden a message was brought to reestablish that trust at the primal level. And that's the same message I preach. And it's the same message every man needs at the deepest level of his being. That's not changed. And we have the same Spirit who endows with power and He is without variableness or shadow of turning. And we have the same immortal Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when He becomes impotent, only then are we impotent. For the church, the believer, possesses in unvarying, in unvarying forms the power that was present then and the message that was present then to meet the deepest needs of human living. The second principle that flows from this text is this that the condition of exercising power is our faith. Now, here's the question Why are we powerless? And this is the answer that Jesus gave because you lost hold of my power, because you didn't trust me, and because you didn't trust me, you didn't trust yourself, and you were powerless. But the capacity to receive spiritual gifts is measured by our faith to believe. I wonder this morning, what could happen in this place? What could happen in our life? What could happen among us if we had faith to receive it? Was it not true that Jesus came one time to a place and and could do nothing because of their unbelief? It was Nazareth. And it was on the day of the synagogue met, and he went there into his hometown, must have been so eager to do those miracles in his hometown, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he, as it was the custom, he came out of the audience and he read from the text Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me to preach the gospel, to recover sight to the blind, to bind up the wounded, release of cap- reliefs to the captives and the unsearchable year of the Lord. And when he finished reading that passage from Isaiah, he sat down, which, which means he, he took the position of the rabbi. And when he got ready to teach, he would sit down. And so he sat down to give the explanation of that passage. And this is how he exegeted it. This is how he explained it. He said, and now that prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. And the Jews there sneered and said, who does he think he is? What an incredulous claim to say that, that the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in him. We know him. He was the son of the carpenter. We know his mother. Who is this little boy that grew up in Nazareth to claim to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? And the Bible says that Jesus could do no mighty thing there because of their unbelief. And that was the great tragedy of Nazareth. Watch this. A tragedy is not always something bad that happens to you. The greater tragedy might be something good that could happen to you, but didn't. The great tragedy that occurs in the life of a Christian, of the church, is that God can do no mighty works because of their unbelief. And the greater tragedy of Jerusalem was not in AD 70 when Titus and Dronicus came in and leveled the city and pulled the temple down. The greater tragedy of Jerusalem was when when Jesus stood over the city and said, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. The greater tragedy is when God can do no mighty thing because of our lack of faith. The condition for the exercising of power is faith. Third principle. That is, the loss of power is often imperceptible. Now notice this. The thing that strikes me about this text is that these disciples didn't know they were powerless. One time they were out and even the devils were subject to them. But all of a sudden, in the face of some crisis... It, it, it was apparent to them they were impotent, they were powerless, and they didn't even know it. It is a principle of life, I think, that the loss of spiritual power is often imperceptible. It's kind of, a, of an unrecognizable erosion, and there is this erosion of our faith, and there is this imperceptible decline of our spiritual resources and power. And and, and, and sometimes it's so minimal that we don't even know it until it's too late. It's what Hosea said, what Hosea meant when he said gray hair was here and there on their heads and they knew it not. There was this declension that was occurring and they weren't even aware of it. What a What a terrible thing, what a sad thing to wake up one day and realize that what we once possessed is gone. Sound like anybody you know? Well, there has to be some reason for it. I think there are three primary reasons for the declension and the the decline of faith and power. One is, now watch this, one is that the service of God becomes mechanical. And there is this l- loss of connection between the motive that originated it and what we're doing now. Why, why did you, why, what, how did you start out to serve the Lord? I mean, there was this blush of enthusiasm and excitement. You were first saved or you, you, you had renewal in your life and, and you began to serve the Lord and there was this excitement and this joy because of your love for Him and His love for you. And, and that was the motive that originated it. But after a while, it becomes, isn't, this, isn't it true? After a while, it becomes mechanical and routine. It becomes a farm and a ritual. So you come to church because that's your duty to do it. And you serve the Lord because that's your responsibility. And on and on we go in a mechanical way serving the Lord. And there is this loss of connection between what we are doing and the motive that originated it. It's true. It's true with all of us. I wonder how many of us are here this morning not out of a sense of great love for God, but because it's what we do. It's a part of doing it. It's a part of the rule, the, re- the regulation, the duty, the responsibility, and it just kind of, the power and the faith diminishes in that. And I think there's a second reason why we lose this power in imperceptible ways. is because of the self-indulgent use of power. That is, the power itself becomes the goal and the God. And there's nothing any more relevant today than the fall of the TV evangelist and at the heart of that stuff that's going on, in my opinion is the self-indulgent use of power and God will not permit that. It's absolutely ludicrous that a man could think that he is worthy the worthy object of public worship. It would be like the donkey who carried Jesus on his back through the streets of Jerusalem thinking those chairs and those palm branches were for him. And this selfish, self-indulgent use of power corrupts men. And it it will violate the trust of the most resolute Christian that he's going to... And he misses the very heart of the Christian faith and that is service to to others. For for power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. That's what's happening. That's what happened to these disciples. And so they came to Samaria. And when the Samaritans wouldn't receive Jesus, they said, what do you want us to do, Lord? Call down fire and destroy them? Self-indulgent, selfish use of power. So that the power itself becomes the goal and the God. And I think there's a third reason why there is this erosion. And that third reason is because we, it, it, it fails the test of, of, of aloneness. There's hesitancy here in this crowd. G. Kamel Morgan says there's not a single person there that believes these disciples can do it. You know, and after a while, you know, the, the fact that nobody else believes causes you to doubt and that wears on you. I heard a preacher give his explanation as why he quit the ministry. One day he's folded up his Bible and he closed his notes and he locked up his library and he quit. He walked out. And somebody was asking him, why did you quit? Why did you give up? He said, well, after so long of preaching the gospel that nobody cared about and nobody responded to, after preaching so long and people just turning away and rejecting it, casting a jaundiced eye at my testimony, he said, after so long of standing alone, it wore me out. It does that. It does it for young people. And so we're so excited to serve the Lord, but after a while, when nobody else does, and after a while, when we have to stand alone, after a little bit, that wears thin, and we give up. And this faith diminished in the lives of these disciples because they saw it rejected so much. There's one last principle, I think. That principle is the most important to grasp this morning. That's this. That our faith has to be nurtured, has to be maintained by constant devotion and rigid self-denial. Now listen to me carefully. The question is, how did I lose my power? What has happened to the supernatural might that we possess? The disciples cried. And Jesus' answer was this simple. This kind of thing does not come except by prayer and fasting. Devotion. I said in the early service and I really mean it, that sometimes I almost am embarrassed when when some, some people come to me and they want to know, how, how can I live? How can I maintain a victorious Christian life? How can I, how can I have, have power with God and with men? And I, and, I, and I tell them, well, the only answer I have to that is that you maintain this constant devotion with God, this communion with Him. You need to, you've got to have a quiet time. You've got to have a time alone with God. And you can just see the disappointment. And, and they, 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 you know, as if they were saying, is that all there is? I, I, I'm, surely there's got to be some more glamorous answer than that. There is, no, there is no answer apart from that. Because the only way to maintain your faith in God and your spiritual power is to live in vital devotion and communion with God. There's no other way. A man who would work for God must live with God. And Jesus gave us the example, for when the disciples went home at night, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and spent that time alone with God. And it was before God daily, in this going in and coming out, that He maintained His contact with a source of omnipotence. There is no other way. Astronomers say that you can take a sensitive photographic plate and you can place it in position so that it receives the light from distant stars and give it a motion that is the motion of the heavens and leave it there hour after hour after hour and upon that photographic plate will be the image, the light of, so, of stars so far away that you can't even see them with the human eye or with a telescope Implanted upon that plate is the image, is the light of those distant stars placed there by its continual lying before it. It's what Paul meant when he said, that if you behold His face, and that word is in the linear action, if you continue to behold His face, you will reflect His face. So that the way to maintain this this faith, this capacity for power that changes the world is to maintain that day-by-day communion with Him. And there is rigid self-denial, fasting. Now, we don't say much about fasting. If Southern Baptists you know, had, uh, had a chorus on uh, Baptist doctrine, I-, I dare say it wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on the, on the doctrine of fasting we don't say a lot about fasting it's obvious that some of us don't practice you know, that too much but I tell you it is everywhere in scripture now watch me carefully what is biblical fasting biblical fasting is the expression of the purpose to control the lower life and to abstain from its delights in order that the spirit might be strengthened now I need to say that again It is not just doing something because of a regulation. That's what Jesus condemned. But biblical fasting and its practice was the expression of the purpose, my purpose to control the lower life and to abstain from its delights in order that the Spirit might be strengthened. And without rigid self-control, without self-limitation, there can be no vigorous faith. And there's some of us who are wondering why we have no power with God and no power with men. It's because we're too self-indulgent. Without rigorous self-control and self-limitation, there can be no vigorous faith. For the casting out, for the liberation of life is no holiday event, and it cannot be done by men and women who are self-indulgent. if you would be used of God if you would have power with men and with God you'll have to pay a price for that of rigid self-denial and self-limitation Jesus said this comes not except by prayer and fasting and those words indict the hallowness of our service and the self-indulgence of our lives and the coldness of our devotion and the cowardness of our faith and what we need to do is to cast ourselves upon him and say oh Lord our strength we have not wrought any deliverance on earth we are powerless before a hurting world and I am weak when when your power is all of it is at my disposal and I am prayerless and I am self indulgent and the enemy puts me to shame and mocks at my weakness. Bring back what I was given in the beginning. And hope he will. And hope he will. I'm told that a sculptor worked long on a, on a marble, on a, on a rock. And every night the cleaning lady would come in and sweep up the, the chips. And one day he was finally finished carving away at this rock. And there was the bust, the image of Lincoln. And the old cleaning lady said, Oh, Lossie, how would you know that Mr. Lincoln was in that rock? I don't know how he knows, but he knows that there is something in us that we are not expressing. I don't know how he knows, but he knows that this church has more potential than he is getting. I don't know how he knows, but he knows that there should be the breakthrough to the already, as Merton said, the breakthrough to the already, and the rediscovery of what has been entrusted to us in our conversion and deposited within the church as a treasure in unvarying form. I don't know about you, but on a day that approaches the miracle of Easter, I am indicted by the fact that we know that I am powerless. Would you pray with me? Father, If the way we receive spiritual gifts is measured by our faith, help my unbelief. Lord, I have lost hold of Your hand. There is the break of connectedness between The motive that originated my ministry and service. I have not wrought deliverance on earth. I am so weak when all of your power is at my disposal. And I'm self-indulgent. And the enemy, my foes, ridicule me. And the enemy laughs. And I pray, renew my heart. And restore. And do it for each of us. Because I pray in Jesus' name. And I ask it for His sake. There are three invitations. Listen carefully. I invite you this morning to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. This has been a beautiful week in my office this week. Two little children have come. Little children. And they've come into my office to to ask, how do you let Jesus come into your heart? And so we grope for these Intellectual and theological platitudes and answers when the answer is just this simple. You invite Him into your heart by faith. And you trust your life to Him. You trust your eternal, eternal destiny to Him. Wouldn't you want to do that? Wouldn't you like to do that? An invitation for people to join the church. I think that The contribution that we make toward one another in fellowship and love is essential. We need you here for service and ministry. Or maybe you just need to come today to say, I don't know what it's all about, but I know that I don't have what I once had. And I pray that the Lord would restore unto me what I've lost. We invite you to come. It'll take courage. It'll take faith. It'll take the first step. We invite you to do it while we stand to sing. Come.